So, um... Uh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of... Cinematic Fantastic. Batu, Barada, Nikto. I'll show you who I am, and what I am! Buy a werewolf and lives, becomes a werewolf himself. Open the pod bay doors, huh? I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Hello and welcome to the Cinematic Fantastic Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Weatherford. And your other host, William Weatherford. Get ready for opinions, dad jokes, and bad jokes. As we watch and review sci-fi and fantasy films from the classics of yesteryear to the new favorites of today. Welcome again, listeners, to the 10th episode of Cinematic Ooh. Fantastic. Yeah. We've hit the middle mark. We are halfway through our first season. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I didn't think about that when we were starting this episode, but that is actually true. Listeners, I don't know if you knew this, but me and William, when we were we were thinking about how long we want these seasons to go, we were thinking like a good solid number is 20. So we would go through 20 episodes and... And we might take a little bit of a break. Uh, well, you, you'll notice a break, but we'll probably be hard at work behind the scenes. And then we'll pop back in. We'll announce when the next season is, is scheduled to hit. And then we'll move on through. So we are in the beginning of the 30s. When did White Zombie come out? 1932? 1932? Yes. This is where we are. We're going to be in 1932 and in 33 for the rest of our season. Is that is that true? Yes. But first, my knuckles are kind of sore, so I need to kind of crack them kind of like this. Oh, no. You shall do my bidding. Okay. So if you haven't seen this movie, you probably didn't get the joke that William just made. So... The main character, bad guy, I would say, his name is Murder. That's his nickname, okay? I'm sorry. I don't. Nah, he doesn't it's, murder people. It's his nickname, though. Nah, it's, uh, it's just addendum mortis. You'll understand. It's, he's just committing addendum mortis, if you know what I mean. All right, so, but his nickname is Murder. That's not something his, his mom named him. You know, he came, he came out of the womb, and she said, oh, Murder. No, his name is Murder Lejean. And I think he's French, uh, is what they do. Anyway, the point is, he's the bad guy. You'll get to know him very well through this. And he does this little thing with his hands. Yeah, his name is very disputable because we don't really get his name a lot. But uh, as far as we know, his name is Murder Legendaire, or as you said, Lejean. Yes. I'd call him Legendaire because he's the legendary murderer. It makes sense. Well, so. okay. So, but he does this thing where he holds his hands like an like a, what's called an S grip. I'm using wrestling terms, I know, but it's an S grip. And he, when he puts his hands together with his thumbs facing outwards, he can control the minds of of the uh, zombies that he creates. So that's what he was referring to. Okay. So um, I will tell you, white zombie. If I said that amongst most people. I said, "Hey, do you like White Zombie?" They were like, "Yeah, I'm. I'm I grew up in the '90s and 2000s. I I know that. I know that metal band. There's a metal band named White Zombie who got their name from this movie." So, if they don't know this movie, this is the source of that uh, of that title. So, this is our first zombie movie. 
or at least most people credit it as, like the very first zombie movie. I mean, we've had some movies that have reanimated corpses, such as Frankenstein and Der Golem. Well, Der Golem's not a corpse. He's a uh, he's Earth. He's a reanimated <laughs> construct. Yeah, to to use to use D and D terms. But this is the first movie to actually use the term zombie, in which will be used for years to come with you know the Walking Dead and all sorts of stuff is really popular. Or not really popular, but like... It's considered the first full-length zombie film. but And in popular culture, it's a very big stance. Yeah, it pioneered cinematic voodoo, which I know that there's a real-life belief system called Vodun or voodoo, and it's real, and it's not, not all about zombies all the time. But it is a form of witchcraft that the people in Haiti have invented. Which witchcraft is ultimately demonic as well, so we don't condone it. Right. It's also Louisianian. Um, I come from Louisiana. That's where my dad's from, <laughs> and New Orleans is where a lot of people would practice this stuff. One of the most famous. She's called a mambo. Mambo, I think, is, is basically she's not mambo number five, but she's uh, <laughs> a mambo is a. I'm sorry if I'm butchering this, but she, I believe, she is a well-known voodoo priestess. Uh, Marie Laveau, and she's very well known in the area. I think, and I know this is weird, and this might actually be a call forward to a movie we'll do one day. Marie Laveau actually had a mansion, and I might be wrong, but I think that Nicolas Cage, the guy who plays uh, Ghost Rider in the movie Ghost Rider, I thought he bought the mansion. He's, of course, he buys all kind of weird stuff, like, you know, Tyrannosaurus skulls for. $150,000, $150,000, and then the, the country of Mongolia asks for it back and doesn't give him the money back. You know, crazy stuff like that. Uh, he buys uh, octopuses just to study their movement for parts he wants to play. Don't ask. <laughs> so uh, th- that is just something weird that I that I heard. But anyway, back to this. So it's a real belief system, and I'm not, you know, downing it and saying, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say it's good or bad. I'm just going to say this is cinematic voodoo, meaning that it's not the same as the real belief system. It's more uh, schlocky and, you know, kind of weird and, and mystical uh, and has a lot to do with zombies. Also, I think in, in, in cinematic voodoo, they do this thing where they have like a, a doll. And you, if you stab it with, you know, like a, a needle or something like that, it'll hurt the person. Whatever you do to the doll does it to the person. That's not in this movie, but it does come up. Well, it is in this movie, in fact. Oh, no, you're right. With the, Oh, no, you know what? The wax dolls. You're absolutely right. You've completely forgotten them. It's like a whole big scene. Thank you for thank you for reminding me. That's absolutely true. This is the first talkie movie that we've gotten that is apart from Universal. And uh, this movie is basically Bella Lugosi movie. That is why we are doing it. You know, it's a movie I've never heard of before even existing. And, well, all these movies, except for, like, Dracula and Frankenstein, obviously, I haven't ever watched or heard of. (laughs) And then maybe A Trip to the Moon. But, like, all the other ones I hadn't watched ever. So there's going to be a lot of movies that I haven't ever watched. Yeah, and that's, that's the great thing. That's the great thing about this is... I haven't watched them in years, and you've never watched them, so they're kind of like new to me. Um, I haven't watched a lot of the old movies all the time. There's newer movies that I watch on repeat, 
but I will watch some of these old movies, uh, you know, maybe once a year or once every two years or something. So it's really bringing it back to memory about why I liked these so much. I won't say that White Zombie is my favorite movie that we've done so far, but it's got some some weird stuff in it and it's and it's kind of schlocky and that's that i kind of dig it it's not something that i would watch again and again this movie kind of fell apart toward the end really yeah i can see where the budget just went schloomp after all this had a two week uh production schedule so i mean goodness that's like a week less than dracula and way less money as well that's definitely gonna affect this movie dramatically didn't make a much uh, a lot over its budget we'll talk about how much it made but it's okay but first off uh its budget was fifty thousand dollars approximately and this is way less than like dracula and frankenstein and like the hundred thousand kind of deal yeah and and i've heard a term you know these are b movies and i've heard of a term called poverty row and it's actually um, a handful of production companies in Hollywood at the time that would do these B movies. So, you know, nowadays a lot of people will watch B movies and now, and they'll make certain actors kind of cult favorites where they'll show up at like Comic Con and different horror conventions and stuff like that, and they get well well known amongst small smaller circles. And they don't make a tons of mo- of money on these movies. They do have fa- their fans, and they make people you know they make people happy because you know, and that's great. But at the time, it was not anything where anybody was like. Uh, Oh yeah, you're a B movie actor. Awesome. No, no, you know, you make low budget horror movies. No, it wasn't. There wasn't a lot of. Uh, you know, there's probably a lot of people turn their nose up at it, and we'll we'll find that out with this movie later. So this movie, it was produced by Hal, Halpern Halpern Productions. Two brothers. The, they were two distributed by United Nations. <laughs> United Artists. United Artists. United Artists. If the United Nations made this, I'd be like, oh wow. Well, that sounds like a name it would be. You know what? Our memory is just absolutely terrible, and stuff. Like in our last episode, our memory kind of failed. You know what? This is the saying I'm going to say is that when our memory fails and humans fail, history does not. So that's why we say go watch these movies. Yes, yes. And, and of course, uh, in, in United Artists, they call it, you know, you'll see the when they later have a logo on online. I mean, on their, on, I'm sorry, on their uh, movies, it says UA. So and they actually had their own uh, theater chain at some point later on. Um, I will tell you this. OK. Uh, speaking of memory, before we get further into talking about the, about the production of the movie, I want to say something real quick. In the last episode, I believe, The Mummy, we said that episodes of different science fiction TV shows like Star Trek, uh, specifically the fight between the Gorn captain and Captain Kirk, were not at Red Rock Canyon where I said they were, but they were those were at uh, Val- Valdez Rocks. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So and and that's a very famous uh, place. I think also there's a scene from Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey that is there. And Power Rangers. As yeah, well. Power Rangers. They also had the uh, command center with uh, with Zordon and Alpha. All right. So uh, okay, just to tell you this right now, this movie comes out in the time period called Precode, because the Hayes Code came out in the early 30s, but not yet. So all the movies that we have covered before 1937 and 38 kind of thing were before the code. They're Precode. The Hayes Code. So they were very wild and wacky and all sorts of stuff the they could blood, get away with. You know, and, and, and kind of, you know... Uh, Which is why there's a lot of movies such as uh, Metropolis, while influential, 
uh, we can't really do them because of the wide the wilderness of the Hayes Code not being in effect. Yeah, I I, I had to check out these movies ahead of time to make sure that they were had nothing in it that was really objectionable as far as you know uh, sexual scenes and stuff or whatever you might call that. So yeah, that the, the Hayes Code had a lot of I, I remember I remember a movie called Quo Vadis I think. And that was like about it was about the Roman uh, Empire and the the martyrdom of Christians. And there's a scene where a couple of gladiators, I guess they're Christians, that they put down into the into the Colosseum, they get speared by like a huge trident, and these three guys are like stabbed through the chest all the way through. And this was pre Hayes Code. So, and there was some good parts of that movie, but nowadays that would be like considered rated R. Um, but back then, this was just this was before the Hayes Code. The Hayes Code kind of you know started cracking down on the censorship, which is probably why whenever um, Frankenstein and Dracula got re-released in 1938, I think that they had those you know censored scenes, or maybe and uh, every time you see a kebab, the Hayes would probably be like, "No, no, I'm getting PTSD." Don't stab those those three pieces of meat with that skewer, please. We're the we're the Hayes Code, and we don't like that. <laughs> so uh, basically, this movie is the Mummy was Frankenstein, basically kind of redone again as a kind of sequel, but not really a sequel, a spiritual sequel. I thought the Mummy was kind of more like Dracula. Now, nah, but uh, this movie is a lot more like a spiritual sequel to Dracula. In in some ways, especially with the with podcast ended. That that's our review. Da, 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 da. <laughs> no, we can go in. We can definitely talk about this movie uh we're not necessarily going to laud it and give it great awards and say it's the greatest movie of all time but this did have some similarities to dracula because after all bella lugosi uh basically his performance is like competing with his performance in dracula because he's just that good yeah he also this is a mind controlling hypnotizing kind of character um, a mastermind so the typecasting perfectly fit him here yeah and we and we will talk about some of the typecasting when we talk about the the cast so first off screenplay yeah the screenplay was based off of, it was by garnet weston and it was based off of a book called the magic island by william seabrook which from what i recall is about the adventures of seabrook in haiti with the voodoo? Let's see, well, hang on. It's about a young woman's transformation into a zombie at the hands of an evil voodoo master. It was inspired by a bit, uh, and this is actually in the movie, A White Zombie. There is a bit of a law clause or something like that in Haitian law that actually uh, mentions what is considered, you know, attempted murder. Trying to put somebody, you know, into a trance and, and like, bury them. That's considered attempted murder. Um, you know, so they would so it, it it acknowledged that some of this stuff happened. Addendum mortis. It's addendum mortis. Sorry, that is what I will refer to him okay. from now on. We've All got right. children here. We've got children here. We can't say attempted murder. Not in a movie with a guy named Murder. But in fact, we probably don't have children here. That is not our target audience. Is young children necessarily? He must be a rapper because his first name is Murder. That's a great name for a rapper. It's murder. All right, so first off, I want to talk about the props and the location shooting. So it was mostly shot on the Universal Studios lot. It had lots of props and scenery from other 
They went, hey, can we um, use your sets even though we're extremely tiny and you're probably using it for murders in the room morgue or something? Right, but they filmed – well, which which also had uh, Bella Lugosi, did it not? <laughs> Again, why we're doing it. This is like for, – for a little bit now, this is probably going to seem like a Bella Lugosi – you know, retrospective and a, or Boris Karloff retrospective for a while. Because these, after all, they these ruled. movies like Murder in the Rue Morgue and uh, White Zombie were put into compilations, and they were the best of Bella Lugosi. That's true. That's true. And I, I think I think it was uh, you'll notice that a lot of the open big rooms that are in this movie um, come from some other Universal movies, such as Dracula. Yeah, maybe, and also some from Hunchback of Notre Dame. So there's a lot of stuff that we've mentioned before. We mentioned Hunchback because of Lon Chaney. We've mentioned that was in 1927, I think. I think so. Um, but we we've mentioned a lot of those things. Of course, some stuff from Hunchback was also reused for Phantom uh, of the Opera. So and some Phantom of the Opera stuff is used in this too. Plus some of the castle stuff from actually from King of Kings, which is actually a Jesus uh, film, I think. Jesus Christ. So. All right. Now, I will tell you, modern reception, modern people have actually liked White Zombie pretty well. I guess with hindsight being 2020, when you look back. I mean, this movie, it wasn't that great, but the. I mean, like, it actually scared. It, like, spooked me sometimes. There are just some memorable scenes. Yeah, it does so, have memorable scenes. And we'll talk about those in the plot. Yeah. And I did. I enjoyed myself. I mean, it does. There's more of them than any other movie combined. It picks up once. Uh, you know, once they poison uh, uh, Madeline, I think it. That's when it kicks off to me. It starts kind of slow, and it's kind of like, um, you know, starts the mystery off. But that's when it really kicks off for me. Anyway, um, critics at the time, as we'll discuss in a little bit, did not like it. Mostly, they saw that it made money. Made eh, made okay money. People tended to give it good reviews, you know, word of mouth coming out of the theater. But reviewers were just, oh, they said it stunk, and they really, they really messed with it. Okay, now early on, they got funding from a guy named Phil Goldstone and from Amusement Securities Corporation. Um, they they filmed it in eleven days in March, in March of nineteen thirty two. They shot on the Universal Studios lot at RKO Pathé. And at Bron- in Bronson Canyon. So they probably didn't get to do many retakes is why the acting is terrible. Oh, yeah. And they're like, hey, we've got to come up with a story real quick. So uh, this happens and this happens and then just yeah. done. A Yay. lot of, other than Bella Lugosi and, and Joseph Cawthorn, who played Dr. Bruner, um, the majority of the cast in White Zombie were actors. Who's, uh, they were kind of going down. They were in the silent era mostly. And their careers were kind of going down a little bit. Bella Lugosi's career did not go down yet. It was still kind of hanging on a little bit to the memories of, of Dracula and some of those other films. He did uh, Black Cat, which we'll see, I think, probably next season, I think. Uh, that one's rough. I'll tell you why later. Uh, it's got some stuff in there that I don't think that the, the Hayes Code would have approved at all. But we're covering it anyway, I guess. It's acceptable enough. Bor- it's got Boris Karloff, and you kind of see how, how much muscle Boris Karloff has in it because he goes shirtless. So he was doing pretty well with, with Dracula and Murders in the Rue Morgue. I don't know why. A lot of people don't know why that he would like sign on such a low-budget movie. And the Halperin brothers, uh, Edward and Victor, I think, they did not have a really good track record uh, with anything. And he got really low pay, and yeah, he was still upset about it. from 500 to $900 a and week. And people still remember him uh, whenever it's brought up that he's like, Where, where's, where's my money? 
that he'll just say that whenever it's brought up to him. The the money. Wow, yeah. That he yeah. so dear wanted but couldn't get. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of people had a little trouble with, with Bella on he kind of would take certain scenes and go, Oh, I'm gonna let no, we should do it this way. I mean he he was a stage actor, and he was in Dracula, okay? Because after all, he was so ahead of all these little fool, little, like, all these terrible actors and stuff. They just like, you know what, I'll take over directing, because you're doing a terrible job, Mr. Victor. Is there directing. anybody else, I want to ask and see, is there anybody else in this podcast from the beginning that we've done who else but Lon Chaney did that? You noticed yeah. that? Lon Chaney did that too. Didn't he like have a big arguments with the director on Phantom of the Opera? But sadly, we've only seen him like twice, I think. Yeah. we. But there's a lot of other movies because that he Because in yeah. the talkie era, he got throat cancer and he didn't do well. Yeah, then. that's true. That's true. Um, the actor uh, Clarence Muse, who played the, the coach driver, or, or at least the, the close-ups of the coach driver, he said that some scenes were partially rewritten by Lugosi, and he he directed some retakes. He's like, oh, let's do it again. So, again, that's absolutely true. And so, uh, also, Jack Pierce was on this as well, because yes. he was in uh, Frankenstein, Mummy, Wolfman. Yeah, kind of yeah, I love Jack Pierce's makeup. Um, it's it's very memorable. I don't think uh, I don't think that any of this stuff would be as as good without him adding to the performances of these of these actors. I really like his uh, when, I, when we talk about Wolfman. I mean, whoa, that's going to be fun for me because. But uh, Clarence Muse was pretty good actor uh, with Bela Lugosi. I think he did a pretty good job. Well, he only on showed up. Movie. He only showed up in a couple of a couple of scenes. And he apparently also wasn't the original actor for the Coachman, which no, could be he seen wasn't. In some scenes. And it may have been, but they couldn't get the other actor for the close-ups. But uh, but Clarence Muse was good. We'll talk about him when we talk about uh, the, the cast. Uh, let's talk about real quick something that's near and dear to your heart, and yes. that is uh, something that maybe you notice. Uh, I think more than me, based upon your your back your classical background, you are a musician. Uh, talk to me about the music, not the music of White Zombie, because I think I'm an expert in the music of the metal band White Zombie. I'm talking about the music of the movie White Zombie. I have to say that. Sorry. The music of the movie White Zombie. And you're, you're up. <laughs> the music of this movie did a pretty phenomenal job. I mean, like, it gets... It kind of... They shove it toward the end of the movie because it's very dramatic during then because it's this one giant, you know, plot piece kind of thing. There's just, like, I don't know, Act 1 and Act 2, and they just smush Act 2 into Act 3 kind of thing. <laughs> it does really pick, but uh, it's a short movie it picks up pace you never realize how much music does to a movie when you've gone without it for so long for like six movies like i'd say like seven and a fourth movies had did not have music i'm estimating guesstimating right but like the music does a pretty phenomenal job i mean the only other music is of course you know the natives they're singing their uh they're singing their chant. Yeah, the chant at the very beginning, and and that was written. Uh, that was written by that was written by Guy Bevier Williams. He was a, uh, a specialist in ethnic music. Um, that would mean music that's that's uh, specifically made by different cultures. He was a specialist in that, and he kind of wrote that. Uh, he worked for Universal Studios. So go ahead, to go ahead. Be like kind of this faux pas native music. So uh, a lot of this 
uh, a lot of the music that was used for the movie was classical music. And uh, one of them apparently is uh, Pictures of an Exhibition by uh, Modest Mazorski. Yes, Mazorski. Uh, if I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah. Mazorski. And uh, I was like, well, where? And so I tried to find where and uh, what movements, or if you can call them movements. Yeah. I, I call them exhibitions, more like it, because that's what it is. It's a collage of exhibitions is the whole piece. But I couldn't really find where and what piece it was, unfortunately, throughout my whole searching today. But uh, it is a pretty good piece. I played it for band. It was one of the first pieces we did. Yeah. We did uh, – there's multiple different kind of movements. But, like, for a band, we did uh, Promenade. We did uh, the Baba Yaga mm. section. And uh, the Great Gate of Kiev, I think it's called. And uh, there was also some other stuff, you know, uh, Wagner with his uh, Here Comes the Bride. Classic. That's true. Very classic. Yeah. Everyone's used Wagner sometime. Lead motives especially have been very influential from him. They were they were new they were new versions of the compositions. Like he had orchestras actually play that. He didn't like take it from like recordings. Uh, he actually had an orchestra and had them do new compositions of those old pieces. And uh, also, we have uh, Maddie later on in the movie plays piano, and this is a list. Oh, Ma- Madeline, uh, she's she's playing a she's playing the part. Uh, oh, she's playing the list part. No, she's playing a list. Isn't uh, he's a, he's a composer? Yes, yes. Uh, oh, yeah. Era. I'm absolutely. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> you totally know that. To- totally. And uh, that was the music that she played then. I don't. Uh, know what the title is, but I recognize it as some sort of list piece. That reminds me, there is a line on one of the posters, and it's uh, posters for this movie, and it sounds so much more, you know, uh, seductive than it really is, okay? It says, with these zombie hands, he made her perform his every desire. That sounds really kind of creeper, but the thing is, though, with the with the zombie hand, but that was the whole concept of this movie. Yeah, but he 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 made her perform his every desire, like playing piano. Yeah, because that's that's all she ends up doing. She just plays piano, and he's like, "I wish you would love me." Yeah, I wish you would you know have some light in your eyes. You made her a zombie, you dummy. Anyway, but we'll talk about this a bit more during the plot. So, uh, what we're gonna talk about next? Well, Father. Uh, we. We thought it was kind of, you know, uh, it it wasn't terrible. We It was pretty average. Bela Lugosi did kind of eclipse this movie. I mean, everybody else is kind of forgettable. I'm sorry. A lot of other people, uh, it's not, I don't remember a lot of their, their performances. I remember Bella's, honestly, and... and uh, but I mean, the atmosphere and the creepiness was on par, pretty great, and uh, it did fall apart toward the end of the movie kind of thing. And they do have a lot of, you know, stereotype characters kind of thing. The di- the dialogue is very is very stilted. And uh, because they couldn't do more takes to, in order to have good dialogue because the writing and the takes... Well, that's what I believe it is. And the writers didn't have enough time to do a good job, even if they were paid more. And a, and a lot of the actors were from the silent era, so a lot of their acting is kind of you know, mugging and over the top. And but, but I think it serves it in a way, because it is kind of over the top. And, you know, 
when somebody says, oh, this movie's a bad movie, if I in, enjoyed myself rolling my eyes at it. So this is like a bad movie, but it's not that much of a bad movie. No, we'll have to wait till we see some really, really bad ones. I, you know, Honestly, I'm gonna. I, that's why I'm very curious to know what you think about movies coming up, you know, because there may be a movie that, that's universally considered a, a bad movie. You might actually like, like it. So let me read some of the re- uh, reviews, uh, and I'm going to re- 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 reveal them in my old-timey you know, uh, take my best gal to the movie's voice. I'll try. The plot is really ridiculous, but not so startlingly as the acting. <laughs> okay, let's do another one. The story tries to out-Frankenstein Frankenstein, and so earnest is it in its attempt to be thrilling that it overreaches its mark all along the line and resolves into an unintentional and often hilarious comedy. So basically, so bad it's good is what he, this guy thought. Um... He, but it's not that bad of a movie I think when you're per, think about I think you're per, it. But it is you're, kind you're of You're being bad. very forgiving, though. That's fine. Uh, let's do another one. Many fantastic and eerie scenes are evolved, but most of them border on ludicrous. Wait, wait, that sounds good. This one says, uh, It rates with the best of this type of film. Bella Lugosi is very impressive and makes the pitch, picture worthwhile. I think we said that. Uh, someone else said, The film is certainly not up to the standards of Dracula or Frankenstein, but the types of audiences that go for horror pictures will enjoy it. Oh, okay, great. So it's not as good as, as Fra- Dracula or Frankenstein, which I totally agree with. And after all, you said it was a B movie. After all, I'd say it's a zombie oh, movie. Oh, nice. No, oh, that's good. So that's what serves it well. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, let's see. Oh, somebody said it was the worst movie of 1932. Huh. Okay. You didn't think of The Mummy? <laughs> no. You didn't think no. of uh, Tarzan? You didn't no. think of Murders the Reward? The Mummy was think of- Hey, The Mummy was good. Invisible Man. No, the, the those are those are not worst movies. Those are all I those know. are classics to me, and you'll you'll see why. All right, so um, let's see. Also, I mean, some people, you know, thought that there were some good elements in it, and, and some interesting elements. Some, somebody did talk about how the part where Lejean says that obedient zombies work faithfully and are not worried with long hours that that was supposed to be an allegory of exploitation under capitalism and colonialism, which I could definitely see that because in the scene where you see the, quote, uh, zombified workers, and it just looks like a lot of them are are of color, people of color, and they're just, you know, going through the sugarcane mill and just working, just mindless working and almost even dying while working, and nobody cares. And this scene was very striking, as we'll talk about later, so much, in fact, that apparently someone... Uh, apparently there's a Disney short. <laughs> Times are very different nowadays. It's a when Disney made their shorts, and uh, 1949 there was a short called Voodoo Hoodoo, oh. which apparently a it was inspired by the zombie mill scene and has the zombie going wow. to work in the mills. I am gonna. I'm going to look that up tomorrow sometime. Voodoo Hoodoo. Okay. It's not on Disney Plus, obviously. No, but though. I can probably find it on YouTube. Probably. All right. So. Oh, this is interesting. In Germany, this movie was called Flucht von der Tufelsenzel. It was one of the few American horror movies to be approved by the Nazis. Um, because it did not have any sensel. Oh, uh, no, yes, right, right. It had no sensel at all. Now, think about this. Why would the Nazis like this movie? First off, I, w- I thought mind control. Uh, the, the other thing is that it did not, uh, you know... They may have looked at it as this is why we don't like black people. I don't know. I don't know. Or that Bela Lugosi was a Hitler kind of character. Oh well, he he's he's European. He's Hungarian, 
he actually is socialist, and so he had to. He didn't he have to flee? He had to flee from Hungary. Yeah, we talked about that in Dracula episode because the Nazis were coming down on the socialists, which is funny because they're the National Socialist Party. You know, nobody can get along, not even the socialists. So apparently, like this movie didn't make that much over its weeks. You know, like I don't know, like five thousand dollars. It failed to gross one week. It's, it failed to gross its estimated eight thousand dollars. And earned only six thousand five hundred following a one week week run, and Dracula grossed fourteen thousand in one place uh, during its first and its week. First week, yeah, that one did pretty pretty well. There was a sequel. Uh, Victor Halpern did a sequel. It was kind of loose sequel called Revolt of the Zombies. It was supposed to have Bela Lugosi in it as another character named Armand Luke. And they just stole the full of the footage instead. Yeah, they did steal some footage, and it's just dull. Lots of recycled. Stuff very by the numbers. You know, like I said before, the band called White Zombie, they actually got their name from this movie. It's a metal band? Yes. There was supposed to be a remake. They didn't have the rights to do it, and it was back in 2009. It kind of folded really quick. So, let's go over the cast. Let's start with Bella Lugosi, yes. obviously. Bella Lugosi plays Murder Lejean. This is during his time frame... He's not using lots of makeup. He's using using some uh, some nice fuzzy mustache and, and nice uh, nice eyebrows. Yes, they're so fake as we'll see in some shots. They just when you zoom up on his eyes, it's just like his eyebrows are so fake. Yes, and his his accent it causes him not to be able to have a bunch of roles and you know typecasting with a variety. He doesn't. He's not able to do a variety of different things. Um, he he was typecasted. So uh, this character is basically, he's more like a more proud, boastful, confident version of Dracula. And he's basically just a villain through and through. He's a very flat character. In fact, all the characters in this movie are flat characters. But, uh, I mean, there's probably other flat characters that we didn't discuss in other movies before this episode. But that'll be a doozy to just go like, which is a flat character? Which is a dynamic character? Who knows? Maybe most of the characters that we've talked about are flat characters. Well, yeah. They don't change. They don't get the No, 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 no no dynamism in this guy. So with... Bela Lugosi, I would say that his his career started flattening out a little bit between 32 and 38. Bela Lugosi does credit his upswing somewhat of his career after 38 with the re-release of Frankenstein and Dracula, albeit it was slightly edited. But that really got people seeing his face again and people that weren't watching movies when they first came out. It really revitalized his career. So he's very thankful to the guy who who owned the theater who decided to re-release those. And after all, most of them, a lot of the marketing material was Bella Dracula Lugosi. So his middle name is Dracula. Shoot, and, and and when whenever you'd have like a you know Frankenstein, it would just say Karloff as I mean like like you just say Karloff, and people are like oh oh we know who that is. You know, it's, it's a lot of the movies we are indeed going to cover are basically this movie is a Bela Lugosi movie. This is a Boris Karloff movie. This is a yeah because they because they're awesome. All right, I will not say too too much about Madge Bellamy who plays Madeline. She's the the female character in this she was uh, i'll say a little bit um there's probably only one really thing that kind of popped out and interested me she used to be a silent film actress she was very she was very prized for you know in in parts for her beauty 
she was voted most beautiful girl, but she has difficulties with studio directors and, and, and producers. She has quote artistic differences with them. <laughs> Later in her career, she said, I got too big for my britches. I wanted too much money. And it was when it was not forthcoming, I quit. So she seems like she's kind of full of herself, but her career kind of leveled off until about 1932 when she started showing up in some of these B-movies. So if it's like, if my swimming pool is not green and full of solid paper objects, then I'm done. <laughs> exactly. If I can't swim in a, in a pool, I'm sorry, you're a little, she's a little... Gotta f- empty my bank account into my bathtub, man. A little bit full of herself. She claimed her performance in White Zombie appeared bad because she had lost her voice due to a cold and was dubbed by another actress. This has been since proven false. And she was supposed to be in, in the Halpern Brothers' next movie, but Carol Lombard got put in that instead. But otherwise, she does play a very, she's a very classical girl. Yeah, she's okay. Dame person in this movie. She's pretty okay. Yeah, I mean, she's not anything to write home about is what I'm saying. I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, she she's pretty, the but. The classic brunette. We've had a lot of cra- classic brunettes. Not very I thought any she was a blonde. Blondes. I thought she was... She's not blonde. Okay. She's brunette. Okay. I thought she. I thought she was blonde as well. Okay, I think she's like brown hair. Yeah. So, like I said, by the '40s, her career is virtually ended. The only thing that really got any kind of attention is she got a scandal back in 1943. She was going to confront a former boyfriend who was a wealthy lumber executive. His name's Albert Murphy, and she had a 32 caliber. I guess I'll say it with a different voice. She had a 32 caliber revolver. She was going to meet him about in 1942. The, she had a, an affair with him for five years, and he ended the relationship all of a sudden. She go, went to San Francisco to, to confront him and make him suffer somehow. <laughs> she said that he, she did not intend to harm him and that she just wanted to see him. He wouldn't see me, so I took the little gun with me. I had the little gun so long that I thought it was just a toy, and she shot him. I only winged him, which is what I meant to do. Believe me, I'm a crack shot. So basically... Scandalous Bellamy, the new movie. Scandalous Bellamy, yeah. Obviously, we're not making light of this situation or this scandal. Yeah, but, but she said that they were never husband and wife, so there's no real divorce suit. I think she was trying to get some money out of him or whatever. There was a set out of out of court settlement about six figures, but that that just ended her career. She's done. So uh, Joseph Cawthorn, Joseph is, uh, Cawthorn, Brunner. yeah, Doctor Bruner. He was the he, you know he's the comedy relief character. No, he's 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 kind of it's a very common character. In fact, is the character who always asks for a match. Oh, uh, well, so that's basically his. I think that was hit that that was their attempt at a joke. Um. But I think they were trying to go. Oh, he—he's he's got comic, uh, comic relief background. That's all he's there for. Other than that, or the professor character. Yeah, he's—he's a—he's a—he's uh, a low rent. Gen- what is it? The generic uh, Kroger brand. Uh, the he's the great value Van Helsing. <laughs> I would say so. I mean, he does yeah. say superstition a lot in this movie. So what we'll do is we're going to play Bruner saying superstition. Full of nonsense and superstition. And then we're going to put uh, Van Sloan's saying superstition. The superstition. And then you can see that they're the exact same. <laughs> Not quite, though. I think one's superior. I'm sorry. Uh, Van Sloan's superior. He's trying to live up to his good acting, but yeah. ultimately So fails. Joseph Cawthorn, he started out as a Broadway uh, actor um, back in the late 1800s um he did what's called vaudeville which was like a, a comedy acts and slapstick and joking and stuff like that it was real popular at the time he had a long career 
you know, he, he was only in movies after his his, his Broadway stardom who was going down. Um, and he started a second career. He did about 50 films. The last of them was in 1942. So let's talk about uh, let's talk about Robert Fraser. He's a Charles Beaumont. Charles Beaumont. He's a plantation owner. Yeah, he is the guy who's in love with Madeline, and basically. He wants Murder Lejean to make him like a love potion, I guess, or something like he's that. He's the rival boyfriend. He is basically. the rival. Yeah, and he's he, he's he's a creeper. And again, a flat character because no one learns anything. What is the lesson? What is the takeaway? Well, wait, now wait a minute. Don't mess with Maui when he's on the breakaway. <laughs> Don't, when he was on the breakaway. Okay, I have to admit, I have to disagree with you about uh, Charles Beaumont because he starts out. He wants her. He caves into um, the wiles of. Uh, Lejean in in making the um, you know he thinks that he's going to get what he wants by doing what Lejean wants, but, but what Lejean wants involves kind of killing her and and really taking her soul, and so and but he gets it too. Uh, spoiler alert. So he learns basically to not hang well, out. Well, he revenges. Shady people. He revenges at the last minute. He he does a last minute like redemption, almost like you know D- you know Darth Vader in Return of the Jedi. I mean you know he's evil. But he, at the at the last minute, he kind of goes, "I'm going to make good." So what did he do? Well, um, as a career, he was a silent film actor. He did about 224 shorts and films from the 1910s. He did do some theater experience. He loved acting. He, he even did stuff in his backyard. He was, you know, so he he's been Jesus Christ in really. Uh, he just he's like, you know what? I'm going to be an actor. My first role is Jesus Christ, <laughs> Holy Savior, Holy Savior. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's not full of yourself at all. He's like, I will portray Jesus. It's a movie called Holy Savior? It's called Holy City. Ah. Cool. Uh, the same year he did Robin Hood. Uh, he was also in two classic horror films, uh, White Zombie and Vampire Bat in 1933, which we're going to see later. Uh, that's the only reason that kind of jumped out at me is because it's like, okay, we're going to do Vampire Bat too, and he's in that. And uh, what about his butler as well? Well, we'll talk about the butler, then we'll talk about the the love interest to boyfriend. Okay, so the the, uh, the this guy's kind of interesting. Uh, Brandon Hurst, he has a very small role as the Beaumont's butler. I mean, he barely has anything that he does. He just looks, he look, you know, he's he's like a low grade Alfred. He's just there, but he was in the English Army. He did seven years there. He did five years with the King's Dragoon Guards in India. So he's very he's has a lot of experience with people who are similar to Hadians. I don't I don't know. But Hadians were more Caribbean because they're yes, literally absolutely. in the Caribbean. But a bump bump but a bump bump but a bump bump but da Which we will do actually. We will? Yeah, we're gonna do we're gonna do, yeah. Yeah, we're gonna do the uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean, yeah. The yeah. That series. Uh, so Broadway, Brandon Hurst did Broadway shows from 1900 until he did motion pictures. He So he did a lot of acting. He did uh, uh, nearly 50 shows until his debut in 1915. Um, he, okay, here's some interesting things. He has a lot of connections to stuff we've done before or talked about. He has been in 129 other films. He was Sir George Carew in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, nineteen twenty. Which we have mentioned, but we're not doing that version because pre-code. We're doing the 1940. Uh, he did, he did jo- Judge Frollo uh, in The Hunchback of Notre Dame, 1923. Oh. That was a really big part. Lon Chaney movie. Yeah. And he also played Barco Fedro in The Man Who Laughs, which I have seen, which was... it's. It, and we've also We talked about it before. because of a Conrad Veidt. Was in that he been you know and that's what the Joker is is uh, appearance is based off of. So back when sound came out during the 1930s, uh, his roles got smaller. 
His last movie was called Two Guys from Texas in 1948. The last person I'll talk about, I really can't talk about much, uh, his name is John Heron. He played uh, uh, Madeline's boyfriend. The only information I can find out about him is it says he's an American actor. He was in more than 160 movies between 1918 and 1940. That's it. That's a lot that's of it. That's a lot of people were doing are so minor that's just like they were an actor. They did some stuff. Maybe they also did Broadway as well. Yeah. That is why we choose important people to be in our movies. So, you know, you may think that sometimes that, you know, that there's an old saying that says no small actors, only small parts. So you can take a small part, which I've done small parts on stage, and you can make them your own and make them memorable by giving them something interesting to, to provide. With that, we're going to talk real, real quick, real quick. I'll try to talk real fast, but I want to give him his due. His name is Clarence Muse. He did the scenes as the coach driver. He was an actor, screenwriter, director, singer, and composer. He was the first African-American to appear in a starring role in a film, 1929's Hearts in Dixie. He was in more than 150 films. He was inducted into the Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame in 1973. Wow. uh, He's studying law, but he couldn't make a living at law being an African-American, which... If he did it nowadays, he'd probably do really well. But, you know, he decided to go into acting. Because after all, if there was still racism out in the world, we wouldn't have Will Smith. Yeah. Well, maybe. So uh, <laughs> so later, uh, he did get an honorary doctorate of laws from Dickinson School of Law in 1978. So there was a time during the 1920s called the Harlem Renaissance. And it was in New York. There was an area of New York called Harlem. And it's still still there today. And it's primarily, the time was famous for people of color, people, you know, the Hispanic and African-American people were there. And they had the jazz clubs. They had, uh, you know, the food was great, uh, dancing, uh, theater. Uh, a lot of times, you know, uh, folks from up uh, upper side of, of New York, uh, you know, the, the uptown would come down to, they probably, you know, sneak into Harlem just to hear really good music. So, but it was kind of funny. It's like they'll come down there to listen to their music, but they won't treat them as equals. Interesting how that goes. So, uh, for the final thing we're going to talk about, uh, what do you want to talk about? Well, uh, let's see. I can't really mention. Uh, we do notice that there are other actors who are who, whose parts were uh, his acting was very wooden, and that was the zombies, Chauvin, uh, Ledot, Ledo, I guess Pierre. Uh, and a couple other zombies. Speaking of zombies, do you want to touch on the uh, origins of zombies first as well? Yeah. A bit more? Okay, so this is not specifically zombies as talked about in the mythology. As talked about in the mythology, it's, you know, someone really does die and their soul is, you know, is under under control by, by a, a sorcerer or a bokor or whatever you want to call it. But uh, specifically, this is... And this, the movie even makes a point of this. It's not true zombieism; it's zombieism based off of like a, a, off of chemicals, which has often often been used for stuff, you know, Night of the Living Dead and stuff like that. Yeah, well, that, that that's uh, as the origins for zombies are instead of they're like supernatural. That that chemical. that's uh yeah that's undead zombies. Undead zombies is like yeah, yeah or radioactive. This is magical zombies. It this is kind is of magic. it's supernatural witchcraft, supernatural. There's actually data, but we don't have we don't have a lot of hard data about this. But let's say uh, there actually is Article 246 of the Haitian Criminal Code, which actually asserts that it's, an, it's almost like an official recognition of zombieism, or at least what we might call zombieism. Okay, so there's an author named Zora Neale Hurston. 
and she did some of the first studies in this in 1937. She was researching folklore over there, and she encountered the case of a woman who appeared in a village, you know, kind of acting very staring and blank-eyed and very like like we would see and like saw in this movie. So she pursued the rumors that the affected persons were given a powerful psychoactive drug, but she was unable to locate people to tell too much more. She says that if it will be found, if you get to the bottom of it, that important medical secrets still unknown to medical science, science give it its power rather than gestures of ceremony. She's trying to say that there's a scientific source for it. A famous uh, Harvard ethno- ethnobotanist, Wade Davis, he gave a case in a 1983 article uh, that later spawned the book The Serpent and the Rainbow, uh, which actually a movie was made of that, which actually more, has more supernatural stuff than you might think. The whole point is that there are these two powders that are introduced uh, into the bloodstream, usually through a wound, and it includes uh, tetrodotoxin, TTX, which is a neurotoxin that's powerful and frequently fatal. Uh, it's found in the flesh of the pufferfish tetrodontidae. So if you eat a pufferfish, then you would die. But if you are in Minecraft, then you'd just get the nausea effect and poison. It's simple. Right. You don't... Minecraft is so much more simple than life, isn't it? All right, so... The first powder is is TTX or tetrodotoxin. The second powder is deliriant drugs like Datura stramonium, otherwise known as a thorn apple, jimson weed, devil's snare, or devil's trumpet. The powders were said to induce a death-like state in which the will of the victim would be entirely subjected to that of the bokor or the sorcerer. The first thing they would do is they would put you in a death-like suspended animation, and then you get reawakened after being buried, and you come out into a psychotic state because the, you get the datura, which is your hallucinatory at that time, and then you get the culture as the as the big trifecta whammy, and that one, you, you know, when you if everybody says you're a zombie and you believe in zombieism, you're just like you you just start acting like a zombie because it's all there. So witchcraft isn't real, but this is. Yeah, possibly. Who knows? But it might actually have been real in the movie, but they were just like, well, what are the parents going to say when they see children looking at voodoo? Or it was just shady I like the overall. fact that, the, that it uses the scientific, you know, possibly the zombie powder to do the whole thing rather than make it completely supernatural and this also reminds me of when nick fury yes. uh nearly killed himself in let, let me answer this let me answer this um i had uh i want to say it's not uh age of ultron it could be civil war is it winter soldier it's winter soldier 2014 oh i got it nice yeah, yeah. So, and supposedly it was supposed to drop the metabolic rate of the Hulk, I guess to slow his heartbeat down uh, so that he could stop from turning into the Hulk. Not the, not the TTX, of course. I, I think so. I don't know. Honestly, when we get to watch uh, this movie, which we will uh, in the future, uh, again, we've seen it quite a few times, but we'll see it again as part of the podcast. And far, far future. Far, from the far future. To um, infinity and beyond. To infinity and beyond. So that's pretty much all I've got on the production and the cast. I think the most lunatic thing about the movie is the plot, and that is your purview, sir. And we are just going to we are going to facepalm, and we are going to just roll. We're going to roll our eyes into the back of our heads at some of these plot points. But honestly. I thought they were goofy and I liked them and and it's a taste of goofiness to come. 
So what do you what what is your what do you want to do now? What are you thinking? Do you want to? I think my knuckles are kind of sore. Mm. Da, 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 da. You shall end the podcast now. We're ending the podcast. Uh, we're we're going on break, and when we come back. We're going to discuss the plot of White Zombie, and we're going to try to make sense of it. And like I said, it's quite a doozy. So strap in. Hold on tight. It, for the Caucasian zombie. The, for the Caucasian zombie. <laughs> All right. And see you soon. So welcome back to the 10th episode of our podcast where we're going to do the plot that only a pinprick in a flower or a, or a glass of wine, and you will groan at this movie. <laughs> it didn't take much. It only took a pinprick. Only took a little sniff of a flower. Yeah, gotta appreciate the one and a half tax story structure. <laughs> Am I right? Right. I didn't notice. I, I just, I don't know how much movie you can really fit into like, what, 60 minutes? These things are really, they really go on a clip. They're really fast. By the time you're really maybe bored with it, it's over. So you're like, okay. But I mean, even <laughs> still, a lot of these movies have been extremely short. And nowadays, most of them are at least an hour and 30 minutes to two hours at the very least. There's some longer ones uh, in the, the genre of older movies, so to speak. I've seen some longer ones. So we can talk about that another time, though. Let's begin how the movie begins. <laughs> okay. With the... The natives are burying someone in the road, and they're singing while they work. And uh, this oddly reminded me of Hooked on a Feeling, <laughs> because, okay, you know what, here's what we'll do. Um, we'll play the first two seconds of the chanting, and then uh, we could probably play the smallest sliver of Blue Swedes, Hooked on a Feeling. Otherwise, just go search it up. Yeah, Uga Chaka. The Uga Chaka part. J- just do that and compare. Uga Chaka, Uga Uga. And why do they bury... Why do they bury people in the road? What does he say? It's it's a ritual. Yeah, I, I think that they bury them in the road because there are places that people pass all the time. Or maybe they just didn't have room anymore. There's no room in hell. That's from... Uh, that's the doom catchphrase. That's from a uh, an actual... Not Dawn of the Dead, but like... Yeah, I think it is I think it is Dawn of the Dead. They say when there's no room, more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. That's actually, that's actually uh, taken from that movie. Anyway, so they bury the people in the road... After being hooked on a feeling. After being hooked on a feeling. Then the word white appears. Yes. And then in the spotlights, the drum comes and it goes... And the zomb- word zombie spells itself out. It's kind of cool. I have to admit it's kind of cool. It comes out to the beat. But they bear- why do they bury him in the road? They bury him in the road because there are people that steal the bodies and resurrect them. So then after the credits, then the intro credits end. Uh, Madeline and Neil are in a carriage and they're heading over to Beaumont's to marry. And uh, their remark on like, wow, there's people on the road and they have to stop for a little while in order for them to pass. 
and then they pass they pass through and it's a little difficult. The coach then gives us exposition that the natives are burying people to do rituals and voodoo. <laughs> Like a burial. In the road. <laughs> Driver, what is it? It's a funeral themselves. They're afraid of the men who steal dead bodies. So they dig the grave in the middle of the road. Their people pass all of the time. <laughs> Cheerful introduction for you to our West Indies. <laughs> and stuff. Well, yeah, so, some people are resurrect them, and so they're burying them in the road so they'll actually have peace. Because I think that the people that come and get those bodies, they don't know to go in the roads looking for them. And as they leave, the natives singing behind, working at toiling at whatever ritual they're about to do, the eyes of Legendaire appear. And they they appear, they get bigger, and then they zoom in onto Legendaire's back of his head. Yeah. To show us, hey, that's who the eyes belong to, although it's not a pretty great job. It's a cool effect anyway. It is a cool effect, you know, for what they had. And so the coach is asking Legendaire if he knows the way to Monsieur Beaumont's, because after all, they're going there to marry. And uh, also to recruit him as an agent for their, uh, I don't even know. Whatever they want to do. Yeah, it's just like shipping company or something, and he's going to be his contact in, in New York or something. And so Legendaire, he's peeking at Maddie with extreme interest while his zombie goons are coming. And they escape because they're like, oh, zombies. But uh, he takes Maddie's scarf, probably to use for rituals, but not really. We don't really see that. That's what we surmise. It might be It might be that, that it has something to do with the ritual. Or he's just a creep and he wants yeah. to smell our perfume oh, and gross. hair yeah. that is laying. Just pick the hairs off Ugh. of the scarf and sniff them. Like. <laughs> that is not, that's not creepy at all. Right. Alright, second scene. They arrive at Charles Beaumont's and uh, Neil is objecting to the coach's fast getaways like why were you getting away that fast? You're really bumpy. And the coach is like, well, you might have been caught. Why did you drive like that, you fool? We might have been killed. Worse than that, monsieur. We might have been caught. Caught? By whom? Those men you spoke to? They are not men, monsieur. They are dead bodies. Dead? Yes, monsieur. Zombies. The living dead. Horses taken from their graves were made to work in sugar mills fields at night. By the zombies, which is worse than, you could have killed us bumping the bumpy road, going fast the bumpy road, all that. And uh, the coach does actually have a really cool job. And he does, I just, I can't really put it into words, but he is, his acting is pr like pretty great, you know, kind of unsettling and like, Cool. He's got a small part, you know, uh, the actor who played him, uh, Clarence Muse, he had a lot of small parts in a lot of movies, but he, he didn't live long enough to see African-American actors really have really good meaty roles that would be accepted by a lot of mainstream Hollywood as, you know, as being substantial. But I'd say this dude does a pretty good job. I would say so. So uh, 
He then sees the zombie goons coming through the hill. Excuse me. It's a nice shot. And he's like, zombies, gotta run. And so he goes in his carriage. Look! Here they come! And so meanwhile, the dog, there's a random dog. The dog is groaning at the approach of the imminent comedy relief character along with all of us. Oh, did you, you were talking about Dr. Brunner? Yes. He's, he, and he's it's okay. rightfully so. So he comes and he says, Hey, you got, you got a match? match for my pipe, which is his whole character trait. It's a very, it, it's a stereotype, basically. <laughs> As is a lot of characters. You know, you have the boyfriend character, the rival boyfriend character. You have the girl character, classic. You have the villain, the flat villain. And you have the character who's the comedy relief because he wants a match for his pipe. Well, I mean, he has a couple of things that he does well. I mean, he's really good at knowing Haiti and knowing their superstitions. And he's able to pass that along, and that's useful. He's like Mr. Exposition. Yes, he says his exposition. He says that he's a missionary, so that he's a worthy wedding officiator for their wedding. So they all head inside the manor, and he also warns of the dangers of Haiti as they're speaking. It's all very, like, if the acting is terrible, I'd say it's a lot more natural. Yeah. Because it's like, if you have handcrafted lines, that's different from speaking naturally and stuff, where there's irregularities and stuff, which is fairly interesting. You, You do see a lot of the acting on their faces, though. You can see some of their background in silent film, especially there's some scenes coming up later with John Heron, who plays Neil, and I thought about some of his perhaps past and silent movie kind of came out, but we'll talk about that point. But And so there's Silver the Butler and not the Hedgehog, sadly. Uh, right. <laughs> Silver the Butler. That's his, he's a Sonic OC, it's official. Yes. Accepted in canon. So, um... Uh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> That's cringe. Um... Silver doesn't have much of a part, of course, like most butlers, but he does have a, a very memorable scene coming up later. So he the, goes then to summon Charles um, because they're here, and uh, he's like, well, you're planning to convince Madeline to marry you, and uh, it's not a very great idea. And Charles is like, well, I love her so much. You don't seem to realize what this girl means to me. Why, I'd sacrifice anything I have in the world for her. Nothing matters if I can't have her. And uh, I'd do anything for her. He'd just steal her away on her own wedding day. Yeah. So he's like, well, you know what? When the wedding's done, I'm going to make make force them to do a divorce right immediately. And uh, as we'll see, she does indeed die spoilers, basically. And who knows? I don't know why people don't do divorces right before funerals if they're married. Right. Would that be ridiculous? It's just like, well, you can finally divorce now and marry me right now. I don't know how, you know, that he expected that he was going to make her love him. I mean, well, okay, think about this. How did this all start? It all started because she was on a boat and was talking to him on the boat. Right. And then Neil came along after. And so what I think happened in this point is when he was on the boat, that Charles was the rightful boyfriend. No, no, no. That no, that Charles thought of himself as, hey, maybe I can woo her and get her, you know, but but then she found she she had a boyfriend and he's still trying his his moves. And so Bruner doesn't intend to stay, but Charles says that they must have dinner and uh, 
Meanwhile, afterwards, Neil is exploring the manor, and he sees Beaumont leave by carriage to, unbeknownst to him, meet Legendaire in his zombie sugarcane mill. The sugarcane mill is a super creepy scene. I mean, you've got these mindless workers. And the loud machinery yeah. as the mill is noisily crunching the cane. <laughs> Yes. Zombies are rotating the grinder with like a big kind of like a boat steering wheel, but horizontal. Yes, it's, it's like a, it's a thresher of some sort. And so they're conga lining and <laughs> delivering the. Well, that's kind of Haiti is kind of around Congo, right? So well, conga line would probably be accurate. Conga line is more is more is Caribbean, but it's more to the south of here. But in this case, to me, it looked like. Everybody looked like they were very dark-skinned, so I was like, they got a lot of, it looked like slaves, like robot slavery. And I was just like, ugh. And one of them, funnily enough, but not funnily enough, this was really creepy, he just accidentally falls in. And they crunch him anyway. And they keep going with no expression on their faces. While he's being chopped up into gory bits behind the screen. It doesn't show you him being chopped up you just know it's happening and so he's probably gonna walk up back again in gory bits just his legs are gonna go and hold some basket again just somehow or just reform by the will of legendaire and his legendary script. it's not supernatural though this is very disputable and kind of confusing because it's like well they kind of say it's supernatural but they kind of say it's chemical so maybe the supernatural and the chemical have a link somehow like the supernatural can't work without the chemical that's 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 possible. So it's like an interface. That's a yeah. That's probably yeah, yeah, one yeah. explanation. That's the only way you can explain some of the elements of the mind control. That's why the writing is so bad. You just are like, well, they have to piece together what the writers are inferring or not even inferring. Yeah, th- there's not a lot of depth to the story, but w- I enjoyed it, frankly. So uh, he comes and visits Legendaire. Uh, how have you pronounced Legendaire. Legendaire. And he is, of course, played by Bella Lugosi in a very creepy role. And he's dressed up in his Abraham Lincoln kind of makeup. Yeah, but the eye... Kind of more French Abraham Lincoln. Yes, the eyebrows, though. Uh-huh. The eyebrows are on point, though. They it's, It looks like one big eyebrow, but it looks excellent. But when you zoom up closely, you can see that they're just so fake that it's just like... Yeah, but just, you gotta go with it. I mean, a lot of stuff in this movie is fake. There's, you know, that you can tell that some stuff is matte, matte paintings. I mean, even some of the stuff in Dracula looked a lot, the matte paintings look better than this. So the zombie chauffeur kind of thing. Well, actually, the, the zombie, the, uh, a little bit earlier when he gets into the coach, he realizes that the coach is a zombie. So he's like, Welp, okay. And so that same zombie leads him to Legendaire. It's a different coachman. It's like it's like one of Legendaire's uh, uh, coachmans. And so then he thinks, ah, you're going to hire my zombies because, you know, you're a plantation owner is uh, who Charles Beaumont is. And so he's like, no, I want to figure out how to get uh, Maddie away from Neil and to, for her to love me, which would probably be with the voodoo magic to fake her death for just a month, a month in order to be with her and then send her right back. And he's like, well, no, he won't. She won't love you at all after that, though. And he's like, well, uh, I got to do anything like I'll accept anything at all to be with her. I think what he what he came to get originally was a love potion. 
Lejean says it would take a year or longer because she really is in love with this guy. You, you just can't make that stuff happen. Do you think she will forget her lover in a month? Not in a month. Not even a year. She is deep in love. But not with you. They will be married within an hour. There must be a way. And he said, but there is another way. And he goes, no. No. So I think he didn't expect that Lejean was going to do the same thing to her like he does to his other zombie slaves that he has in uh, working in the sugarcane thing. So I think he Beaumont doesn't want her to be like that. And then he, but he doesn't have a choice. And so then he says the only answer to help you, Charles, with your love problem is to transform Madeline into a zombie with a potion. He says only a pinprick and a glass of wine or maybe a flower. And he kind of pulls a Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil. <laughs> How does he pull a Dr. Phil? By giving him uh, relationship advice. <laughs> exactly. Well, they both have an accent. I mean, Dr. Phil has that thick accent from the South. And so Beaumont yeah. hesitates but agrees and he takes the potion because he's like, take it and you will change your mind. We'll also play that here. Keep it. You may change your mind. And next we have Madeline's wedding and funeral. That's what I titled this part. Well, we don't know it's a funeral yet. We think it's a lovely wedding and Beaumont's going to give her away. It's it's lovely. It's great. It's going to be great. <laughs> and so Maddie is being dressed by like maids. This this scene is also cut out of some prints because Maddie's in her underwear. But I'm like, well, no, it's just baggy, old-fashioned underpants. Yeah, it's like it a, it's looks like a fashionable. It's so fashionable. Yeah, it doesn't expose anything ordinarily. It just looks like pants. Yeah. So uh, the natives are doing a ritual outdoors, and uh, they're like, oh, who could, what on earth are they doing out there? They are driving away evil spirits. Close it. Close it. And uh, then the wedding commences because this is so short a scene. They were like, well, we got to cut this out and censor this in some versions. So we're just going to make it so short it's inconsequential. This is uh, Wagner's Here Comes the Bride. They play it on the the organ as they're going to marry. And Charles Beaumont is the best man. And he's all like to Madeline. He's like begging her. He's like, I will love you. I will be whoever you want to be. I'll give you anything you want, anything you need. Oh, no, I'll that song again. True. Are we going to bring that song back again? It's perfect. It's perfect. It, it is It is for this scene, too. He just needs a mole. That's all it needs. Oh. And to be an amphibian. I love you, Madeline, more than anything else in this whole world. Heaven or hell lies a mystical from you. You can raise me up to paradise, or you can blast my world into nothingness. There's time you can get here. I can make you the envy of every woman. I'll give my life to make you happy. Exactly. Well, I will tell you this. Beaumont's timing is terrible. I mean, you don't try to give away... Read the room. Yeah, exactly. You're trying, you give away a woman to her soon-to-be husband, and you're trying to, to mack on her while you're coming down the stairs. And she thinks it's so inconsequential, and uh, while he's expressing his love for her... And then he's like, well, I'll give her a flower that has the potion in it because it's the perfect time. And then she's like, it's so lovely. 
Yes. And she doesn't know that she signed her will right then and there. And we signed the will as well because this movie's so terrible that uh. we're going to die midway through. <laughs> oh, it'd be thankful. Just in this movie. It would be thankful for us to die. I would I would love to die in the middle of this movie and be like... I died with Bella Lugosi's eyes and terrible eyebrows staring into my soul. Yes, exactly. So she doesn't die right away. It does take a little bit of time, I will tell you. Yeah, they're having a dinner after the wedding, which is just entirely skipped for time, I guess. While, meanwhile, a legendaire is carving a wax woman outside with a nearby lantern's candle. And, uh, I don't really know if this was the pictures of the exhibition thing. I don't know of the listing, but I'm like, I can't find the darn movement thing. But, uh... You're, you're not sure, you're not sure which, uh, that they used of Mazorsky, what, what part? I want to find what part where and stuff because it's like it's listed they'd found what the piece was they just didn't specify it mr imdb right and uh also this was a bit confusing i just gotta address this for those people who aren't music nerds uh earlier when i was like you said oh it's the list part and i uh that was probably my fault but I was just like, do you know your music, man? Because that's not a movement. So what I was saying was that uh, Great Gate of Kiev and uh, Baba Yaga and all that, those were movements of pictures of an exhibition. Ah. And uh, all the rest, I meant to transition away from that. But uh, I guess I didn't do it successfully enough, just addressing that for all the people who don't know what a movement means. They just think everything's a movement of pictures of an exhibition. I'm like, no! That that's where you're wrong. Well, uh, it's, everybody's got to have their thing, and that's something you appear to take very seriously. So again, I'm not gonna fight you on music ever. I'm just gonna we're gonna have civil conversations, and I'll talk you down from the ledge when you get a little bit loony with the music, and I'll be like, it's okay, it's okay. <laughs> and then also from Nosferatu. The death bird is canon, so the death bird appears, it seems. And it's so annoying in this one. It can it screeches so loud, even without opening up its beak because of limitations, but that's another thing. But it's so annoying. We will play the clip here, but cover your ears, just muffle them. It's so annoying that it's just like, get some medicine, man. You're gonna get throat cancer. <laughs> And uh, that's why the Death Bird is so annoying, yet it's canon. Nosferatu is in the same universe as White Zombie. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. But even if it's not, we could say it's uh, the same universe as Caucasian Zombie. Uh, same thing. Right. And so, uh, meanwhile, she's looking into the cup that uh, she's about to toast with because Charles is like, look into the cup and see, because they're like all drunk and stuff. And so she uh, she says she sees happiness, she sees love more than you deserve, and she sees death. We'll play that here as well. I see happiness, I see love far more than you deserve. What is it? I see death. And that is when Bella Lugosi's face appears in the cup. And he's going to burn the wax woman's head. And uh, he does so, and she sees so. And she's like, ah! And then she dies. <laughs> right. And this, this, this of course, is, is a connection to a voodoo belief called sympathetic magic. Voodoo dolls. A lot of belief systems have belief in sympathetic magic. There's even a 
group, a, a belief in magic in the Appalachian Mountains here in America. Aaron Copeland? <laughs> no, they have a little doll they call a poppet, and it's like a small uh, a doll made out of uh, little twigs and, and, and stuff. It's supposed to represent someone. Yeah, in cinematic voodoo, this is the classic voodoo doll that is used in a lot of different movies. You yes, know, the, indeed. They're usually made out of cloth with pins in them, kind of like the, the movie Nine. Yeah. With pins in it. And uh, not alive. <laughs> right, exactly. And uh, also magic. So then he's triumphantly walking toward the screen, legendary, as the scene ends. Because he's like, ha ha ha, I've won. He's a very confident, boastful character. He's very cocky. Because he's like, I'm a villain and very cocky. I'm going to win all the time. Because ha ha ha, I'm a villain and villains always win. Very flat character, but very good acting compared to everyone else in uh, Clan's Muse. Uh, Lejean's going to get whatever he wants. I mean, that's he's he's very sure. Uh, he he's got he's got the dirt on everybody. And so then Madeline is being buried, which is I want to say that this is an obvious connotation of the far far futures coffin dance meme. Oh wow! Fortunately, we can play the music here as we're talking, but. Apparently, two days ago or three days ago, the actual meme is an NFT now. So a non-fungible token. <laughs> I guess we're dated now, but fortunately, we don't have a video media format, so we can't play the meme. And even if it is, because it's an NFT now. Ha ha ha. But the music isn't. Right. That's a good thing. That's true. We're dated now. Yeah, we are super dated, but that's okay. I'm just going to say now, because this is my first mention, NFTs are dumb. This is kind of dumb. I, I just want to play a meme and laugh at it, man. Why do you have to own it? I, okay, as a shout-out, my brother-in-law, John Mark, from the Johnny Random Show, he did a show where he talked about NFTs, and he had a really good idea about them. I think a lot of people are kind of dumb for buying videos or music and with that in it if they're not owning the you know, owning like a, on an album by album basis. So that's a referral. Go watch the Johnny Random show. They didn't know that we'd advertise them, but we did. Yep. Huh. They're on YouTube and, and Spotify. So now we can truly have a dance battle. <laughs> And this scene is kind of sad. You know, what I did like, and you'll probably notice this too, William, is is that they're putting, you see the POV or the point of view of the grave itself and the coffin going into it because they're going to show later them pulling the coffin out in the same manner. So it's just a really interesting shot. I mean, it's not, to most people of modern times, they'd be like, of course, they would do this shot. But it's just, it's, it's, it's effective. So another very striking scene in this movie that's kind of spooky is that Neil, in his grief at his dead Maddie, and he's in a bar while everyone, there's like happy music playing. We'll play that here over as we're talking. And uh, Neil is just sad and depressed in a drunken state at this bar. And he's seeing ghostly apparitions of his wife, uh, or yes, wife now, fiance previously, not even boyfriend, fiance. Uh, sorry, we messed that up. If anyone said boyfriend, but uh, <laughs> anyway, and so he sees her in his spilled beard, and then in a shadow in the wall of a woman, and uh, everyone laughs at him at an, and his depression because he's just so sad. 
and with grief. They're just laughing at his situation. The way the way he's acting here, it's very nonverbal. So I think he's bringing some of his experience from the silent screen. And you could say as well from the silent screen, the German expressionism often used shadows. So this yes. is kind of, could be seen as a callback toward that era. We haven't really done any German expressionism movies really at all, except for like four. So I mean, we we probably should have given it more credit. It's got a lot of credit. It's got tons of credit. The thing is... It... Just go watch the German Expressionism movie. Uh, we seriously uh, endorse it. It is... They are cool. It's a cool era. We, <laughs> uh, But now we're in the Universal Monster Movie era. But this isn't Universal. Wow, that's a tangent. Anyway... That's okay. But uh, they're, they're around in the same area, the same time frame. Legender also introduces his zombies... We forgot. I go, the rich doctor. Once my master. Secrets, I tortured out of him. Bangerda, the swine, swollen with riches. He fought against my spells until the last. Him, yes, I have troubled times. And this, this is Chauvin. The high executioner. Almost executed me! As Legendaire, and he's his zombie pals, and he's retrieving Charles and Legendaire and the zombie pals, and uh, they go and grab Maddie out of her flowery cloth coffin because she's just that good, man. She gets her own flowery coffin and uh, does not kiss her, as in Snow White, obviously, but uh, though he actually did, though, Actually, now that I think about it, he's, he said so. Uh, Neil actually kissed the corpse of Maddie. But uh, so, uh, Neil is stumbling to her in grief. So they're running away with the coffin in their arms. Or rather, the zombies' That arms. was a close call. It was a really close call. They almost bumped into each other. Upon which Neil discovers that she's been stolen. Yeah, and he's either, and there's no place he can go for help. Except to Doctor Bruner. Doctor Bruner. He's got all the answers. He knows all the. He knows all the stuff about all this. Uh, all this. You know, voodoo uh, mumbo jumbo. So uh, this scene begins and ends with Doctor Bruner through Neil's armpit, which is a creative but odd shot. I mean, like, why do you want the camera to receive that stank, man? <laughs> no, it sounds like a quote funky shot, but it's very interesting shot to be honest. So uh, Doctor Bruner basically will sum it up explains that she's not actually dead, that she's uh, gonna be turned into a zombie. And then Neil's like, her lips were cold, I kissed them myself. And we can play some of these clips over the course of this. And uh, she's worse than dead when than with the natives, which is kind of racist. Yeah. So uh, Bruder then gets a book of the Hadian Law of Zombieism. And uh, he hits this book repeatedly <laughs> over the course of this scene. It's about hating natives burying that you don't actually have to be dead to be zombified. And so instead it was a drug and she can be revived uh, from the TTX yeah, whatever the, the, concoction. We talked about that earlier in the podcast. Uh, Tetrodotoxin. Potion of zombie. Yeah. If, if this was D&D, that is. Zombie. Potion of zombie. Potion of zombie making. Yeah. Oh, oh. by the way, uh, whenever he in – the, in the law book he says something like – it says something about attempted murder. That to give somebody this powder and to put them in the grave, they're not dead, 
it's so it's attempted murder. So it's not real murder, but it's still a crime. So that's that's how it's written. And so that at least, you know, uh, that acknowledges that this stuff goes on. And that's why he's kind of taking it seriously. And he also says toward the end of the scene, in fact, dad noticed that when uh, you notice that when he slaps the book, the restoration seems to lose restoration. (laughs) Right. He, he He slapped the movie into bad quality for all of a sudden. And that's because for the restoration print, the highest you have to have the highest quality print in order to restore it from like the carbon nitrate, whatever film, the highest quality you gotta get. This wasn't in that film, so they had to get it from a really bad quality film that did not cut this scene out for no random reason. They just cut this scene out. And so then uh, this part, he explains that he knows this knowledge because the Haiti natives worship him. They think he's a magician. But uh, we can play that clip uh, here as well of him saying that. I got friends among the natives. They'll tell me things that no gendarme could ever get out of. Because... I'm a preacher. They think I'm a magician. You got anything else to say about this scene, Father? No. Well, the thing that I that I would say is that it lends it some credence in the fact that, that it makes it a little bit more believable that there actually is something in the Haitian law about this. Um, it doesn't mention supernatural, but it does mention that there's a practice that goes on, and that's what's happening here. And that's kind of this part of the Haitian law was in the, in the book uh, Magic Island by uh, Seabrook. And that's what inspired this element of it. It kind of gives it a little bit more. I mean, there's been supernatural stuff going on. I agree, but it gives it a little bit more of a scientific basis. So, I and Bruner seems to be like a like I said the last uh, or the earlier part of the podcast. I said he was a low rent, great value Van Helsing, and yeah, he kind of is because he has to give this whole scene to an exposition dump. Am I right? Right, exactly. And that is frowned upon. In most societies. But that is called cannibalism, my dear children, and is in fact frowned upon in most societies. No, you need an exposition dump in a lot of these movies because you're like, what is going on, man? You need something. Because the writing is so bad you can't even tell. Well, well, the thing is, the thing is, there's some movies that don't, they don't tell, they show. And, and, and when you can do that very artfully. That is very admirable. It is. Like, there's a movie that's, that's going to be in a couple seasons of, of the show we're going to eventually get to 2001 A Space Odyssey. And it doesn't explain everything, at least not in the script or in the movie itself. You kind of have to piece it together by watching what's happening. But 2001 A Space Odyssey, it's a really great movie. Yes. And I would have liked to seen in 2001, they released 2001 Space Odyssey version in which they go to the future, but instead it's just the modern time and they go, oh, there weren't flying cars and robots and spaceships and AI robots yet. And then that's just where right. the movie ends. And it's a whole joke. I'd like to see that. They would be like, there's a war on terror and uh, the president sucks and uh, gas is expensive. I know. I know. That happened in 2001. So uh, how do they – what do they decide to do at the end of this scene? Uh, do they decide to go confront uh, Beaumont or something? Not Beaumont specifically, Legendaire. Oh, right, right. They don't know Beaumont's there. At his castle, his royal castle that you uh, said was from King of Kings, of which that is near the shore. I don't think it's King of Kings. I think a City of Kings is, I think is, was the name of the movie. I, not, I don't, don't quote me on that. The Holy City? Yeah, something like that. And so a uh, zombie Maddie is playing List 
on the piano. Classical music, this piece I learned the name of was Leibestrom, which is Love and Dreams, is oh, the, what it translates to. Nice. It's very pretty, but I still can't find that darn pictures of an exhibition movement, sadly. Well, the, th- the thing is, you know, it's it's kind of ironic that she's playing a, a song that's Love and Dreams, or Love and Dreams, and she's lost both. And she's kind of in a dream. She's in a dreamy-like nightmare state, and she has no love. And we could play a bit of that song here as well, since classical music is, well, copyright-free. Public domain! Yay! That's what we like on podcasts, anyway. Yeah. Um, Charles is, like, weeping in regret over their impossible love. And he's like, the the sight in your eyes is so terrible, we can play that here. Foolish things. They can't bring back the light to those eyes. I was mad to do this, but if you'd have smiled on me, I'd have done anything for you, given you anything. I thought that beauty alone would satisfy, but the soul is gone. I can't bear those empty, staring eyes. The thing that I liked about it was that he was, he was saying he just wanted to see, you know, some bit of light and some bit of soul something in her eyes she's like i got the girl but at what cost yeah he learned really quickly that he done screwed up and i got at least respect him on that is he's he's like you know this wasn't a great idea what have i done you know sometimes it takes whole movies for people to but again this movie is 60 70 minutes long so he's got to figure out oh my gosh what have i done very pretty quickly for this movie to proceed to an end upon which legendaire He's kind of framed by the keyhole, like a statue, abstract statue of like a kind of like a four leaf clover kind of thing. It's yeah, like a cross part of like uh, it, the, the design of the castle, and it's just like a little thing you'd pay. the design of the banister as he's coming down. Yes, the stairs. and they do that twice, I think, for another character coming made through. out of stone. Yeah, and so uh, also music from now on is constant. There's constant music upon which I'm like. Wow, that kind of sets, like, music just fills an empty hole in your soul to where it's just like, even a bad movie can be fixed with some music here and there or everywhere, as is in most movies nowadays. It's just everywhere. That's a good thing. Yes. So Charles is begging Legendary. He's like, return her to life. But the effort is in vain. And he's like, no, she's a good servant of mine. And uh, they also toast to the future of something, just the future overall. But Charles is now poisoned with the zombie potion because he goes, huh, this wine is pretty sus. And he goes, well, a pinprick in a flower, even a glass of wine. Dun, dun, dun. And then he realizes... Yeah, they did. They did hint at this uh, earlier. He said a pinprick, you know, just a little bit in wine or flour. First time it was the flour that that got Maddie, and this time it's the wine that gets him. So, and because of Legendary's pure malevolence, Silver then is like trying to kill Legendary because he's like, "Oh, you're evil." Uh, but his mind is then controlled, and you see the effect where he's slowly blurring and blurring and blurring and being obscured as he's trying to attack him. And so then the zombies come get him. Now, one second. I want to ask you a question. Do you remember another movie we did in which somebody's supposed abilities of hypnosis or control caused someone's vision to get blurry to represent 
their control. That is Dracula or Drac, kind of cool. Wait, yeah. wait, wait. What about there's an earlier? What about <laughs> Phantom of the Opera? A little bit of that as well. Yeah, there's a lot of these mind control. I mean, if being having your mind controlled and, and being a robot or being emotionless, we're gonna see, throughout the years, you're gonna see that fear of being controlled or being out of control or being a slave of someone else is definitely a fear of a lot of people all throughout the world, and that and that gets uh, shown in this movie. So when Silver is paralyzed, the zombies then grab him and throw him in the well while he's screaming. This is horrifying screaming. We'll play that here. It's very horrifying. Oh, uh, yeah. And so then uh, he tries to hold his breath. This might actually be a kind of goof where he's like, well, they don't actually want the actor to die during the scene, so he's got to hold his breath to make sure he actually survives getting thrown in water. But uh, I want to take this as actual thing where he's like trying to survive and hold his breath, but he eventually fails, and he dies horrifyingly. Sorry, uh, Silver, we hardly knew ye. And so this is where the movie kind of... This is where the Act 1 ends and the point five Act begins, <laughs> basically. I thought this was the the end of the movie is where it starts, starts heading towards. Yes, this is where the budget started going downhill, and they're like, well, we don't have any time to do anything. No more second or third takes, we'll just do something. And uh, so Neil and Brunet, meanwhile, they're on horseback or donkeyback or muleback or... Uh, any of those. Right. <laughs> and so they're going to meet Brun- Brunier's, Brunier's friend, Pierre, who's a witch doctor. And uh, this is, you can obviously tell where the budget went is like, uh, our story isn't interesting, but look, here's a, van- a fancy V-shaped white transition. And then that's where you tell that the, <laughs> I mean, Star Wars, Star Wars is great. For those trans, there's slide transition, wipe transitions. Those are good and serve the movie well, and it's part of good personality. But in this movie, it's just kind of distracting. Yeah, and George George Lucas got it the, those ideas from movies like this and from Flash Gordon, and, other- and it's incredibly cheesy. Yes, it is. And old-fashioned, which I, I I like it. So Brunier, he wants Pierre to accompany them to the castle, but Pierre is afraid of the zombies, and uh, he was also the only survivor of the zombie potion. Turn back before it is too late. Oh, no. My people are afraid of the mountain because it is called the land of the living dead. I am the only man that ever came from there alive. And uh, well, after he explains this, we get a diagonal wipe transition. So they're like, look, we have two transitions. We have two types of transitions. We can do lots of different ones. We could do a star wipe, a toilet wipe, any of those. Right. <laughs> and uh, any sort of wipe transition. And uh, so the two camp on the shore, and the death bird then accosts them with its annoyingness. This is from earlier. Its throat must be so sore. (laughs) And uh, they chase it away, and Neil is not really doing fine, so he's remaining at the camp to rest while Brunair is going, goes into the castle. And then there's a dramatic, very dramatic scene where it's very melodramatic, actually, with the... 
there's angelic native singing as diagonally placed is Maddie on the balcony of the castle and Neil in the camp as they look at each other and see each other. And then also as well to complete it, there's a V-shaped white transition and then a diagonal white transition. Wow. <laughs> wow. They are really getting creative with these things. They're like, you've heard of this transition and this transition. Well, let's do them both right after each other in quick succession. Well, the, see, that's where our budget went. That's where I, our entire budget went. And uh, Sunil then has found Maddie, his great love, and then also goes into the castle. And uh, he goes past the well. And uh, then there's a small scene where the maid is trying to comb the hair of Maddie, but then refuses because she's so creepy. And uh, that... Why would you command a girl to get her hair combed? You could make her go work in the workforce. She didn't mean to look pretty. Right. Exactly. Uh, so this is the second to last scene is where Madeline attempts to murder. Um, <laughs> that's what I called it. Madeline attempts murder. Right. So uh, Charles is trying to resist turning into a zombie so much they can't even speak while Legendaire is carving his wax doll. And uh, this scene is very cool because he's like, what is it like? You're the first one to actually know what is happening to you as it's happening. So I want to know what it's like, and it's a shame that you can't talk and you're just paralyzed oh, with trying to do it. And he's just so evil during this that it's just creepy. It's very creepy, man. Do you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of, uh, we'll, we'll do this movie in the future, but reminds me of a scene, uh, Princess Bride, where Count Rugen is talking to Wesley, and Wesley's just been through the, the life-sucking machine and he says, I want you to tell me, tell me how it feels. And remember, this is for posterity, and all Wesley can do is moan. And he says, excellent. And he writes that down. <laughs> that's, that's at least Wesley could... He writes down the monomatopoeia exactly. Then Neil has managed to work his way into the room, collapses on a seat because of his tiredness for no reason at all. Yes. Like, why, man, are you tired? So then Legendaire sees them, and he summons Maddie to go kill Neil because, yes. <laughs> and uh, because his reasons. eyebrows are so fake when he zooms upon the eyes of Legendaire because she goes and kills him, but then she hesitates because she loves Neil. But then when he does the eyes thing again, even harder, he tries to crack his knuckles even harder, even harder, even squeezier. And I don't even know. Like you're just doing one motion. How do you how do you get complicated and like instructions based on just boom? No, well you know you know whenever you see Superman flying and he's like he's got his hands and fists out in front of him and he has to go even harder and even even faster. He like goes, Ugh, you know, and you're like, you didn't do anything. It's same thing with with Lejean. It's like he's like, let me change my grip which is only slightly different than the regular grip. And it's like, oh, oh, that he just took that grip into ultra Super Saiyan mode. He turned it into ultimate shaggy mode. Zoinks. Goodness. Zoinks. All right. So, uh, what, so... So, when she tries to kill uh, Neil with a knife that she grabbed off of the kitchen table so dearly, this... This castle scene is very huge 
kind of Frankensteinian or the Dracula set yeah, kind of that thing. Yeah, they, they may have actually gotten some pieces from that too. Uh, but the eyes are too much. So then she goes for the stab, but then Brunner grabs her hand from behind the curtain, making her drop the knife. She didn't succeed, and she goes and walks away. And so the last scene of this movie, it's very dramatic. Maddie is then ordered to suicide herself into the water. Sorry, Sudoku, addendum mortis, I mean. <laughs> right. She tries to addendum mortis into the water, stops herself, and then the zombies uh, are surrounding Neil uh, to chase him off of the dock as well. It's kind of like a stairwell. Like, with it's like, a, like it. a waterfall. It's like a little waterfall kind of uh, parapet. Like a off of a castle. It's a huge cliff. Yes. That would easily kill anyone, even though they're hitting water. Which in Minecraft you cannot die from hitting water at all. So <laughs> Minecraft is not realistic. But it's like, why? Why can't I just be in Minecraft? Why can't the world be Minecraft where I can't die by hitting water? And belly, that, there's no such thing as belly flops. Well, we're about to see some. Death by belly. <laughs> death by. Mur- murder legendaire. Death by belly flop. Yes, ex- absolutely. Geronimo. So how did the, how did the how did the zombie servants get get their just desserts? How do they how do they how do they get get deleted? So they're trying to push Neil in, and they're not even stopped by the bullets of the gun as he's frantically shooting. the The music is rising. Uh, legendaire comes in. And then, apparently because they didn't succeed, and Brunaire, like, uh, moves them back, they then decide, oh, I'm going to addendum mortis as well, for no reason. So they just all plop into the water for absolutely no reason, other than we just need them gone, disappeared. They ran out of all the budget. Or maybe maybe they subconsciously wanted to die, and they just, like, that was their last, their last gasp of, like, maybe... You know, we should just end ourselves because we're we're so evil. So then when Brunaire knocks over Legendaire, Legendaire onto the floor, then Maddie is starting to revive herself because Legendaire doesn't have control anymore over her. So then she peers into the eyes and she's actually alive for once. But then Legendaire, he, he gains control because he gets back up. And then they go like, wait, there was light in her eyes for a second. And then they turn around and they're like, wait, stop, and he's trying to get away. And uh, he throws a spice-filled egg on their faces, and it makes like a kind of gas mist kind of thing. Unfortunately, he does not get away after all, because they did not, it did not work. The pepper spray, ice, shell, whatever, did not work. I think it's actually an old, uh, it's an old trick, even Shinobi or Ancient Ninja would actually use it. They take a chicken egg and and they pull all the yolk out of it through the hole, and they would put they would inject the, this chemical in it. When you throw it down, it cracks and it hits the air. It uh, it turns into 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 smoke. The reaction comes out like a smoke. And then Charles then grabs them by the shirt cuff, and then they both go down and into an eye for an eye down into the water of Geronimo. That was cool because I, I think that was like the last redemption of his character. I was like, right, I, you know, I actually watched that and went right on. You know, I was like, good for you, Charles, you know? And then the death releases Maddie from the zombie trance, and then she awakens and braces Neil, her husband. And that's the end of the movie. So was that a groaner plot? Maybe. 
it fell apart against the end, but Here's the I thing. don't really know. I, I have one question for you. Do you have a match? <laughs> That's the final line of the movie before they play the credits and uh, they have at the end. They don't even have a cast is worth repeating because the cast is not worth repeating. This movie is absolute poop. <laughs> I did. We're I, dissing this movie. I'm very okay, sorry. I did like the idea behind the movie, and I did like Bella Lugosi's... But it's not poop. It is it's not a, It's poop. okay. It's schlocky, but at least... I've seen movies with less plot. I've seen movies that were boring. This movie was not boring. It got in, did what it wanted to do, and it got out. There's other movies. I think the, the worst thing a movie can do is nothing. It can bore you to tears and not have any point to it. And this at least had a point. It got in, it got out. Is it memorable? I don't know. I, I, it's kind of memorable, but it's, there's other movies that I, I could not tell you what happens in them. And I don't really know if this movie was trying to replicate the success of Dracula, um, but it definitely kind of tried to redo Dracula to ill success. Yeah, you're right. It, it was riding on the coattails of Dracula. It was, you know, it was riding, it was trying to ride on the success of, hey, remember that guy from Dracula? Well, here he is. And that was a lot of Bela Lugosi's uh, career. Which was kind of the thing that Mummy did, except Mummy was kind of better, though not as good as Dracula and Frankenstein. Uh, the things I liked about Mummy, and see, we're talking, see, now we're talking about other movies other than White Zombie, because White Zombie was so... <laughs> well, who knows? We probably got the recent Moon Knight on our minds, and Moon Knight features a lot of... It features basically a lot of the mythology of Egypt in it. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, this also dates our podcast even more. No, I don't think so. I think I think because we started recording when the third episode came out. Yeah, I I think uh, I think people can actually watch this episode. You know, now if Disney Plus goes belly up in like five years, which I doubt, um, it'll still be there if somebody catches our podcast. You know, after we're you know two, three, four seasons in. Uh, so by the time we get to talking about some of the more modern movies, they will have been out for a good little while. And that's okay. That's fine. You know, we're talking about older movies and going going through the years, and a lot of people might say those movies are dated. But um, honestly... It's an entirely different yeah. thing. It's a different It's like feel. a century beyond. It's an entirely different culture. People dress different, talk different, things were different. Tobacco was legal. Or I don't. It, it's still legal, but it's like frowned upon more than then. People did blackface and weren't canceled. I mean, it, it was a crazy world, you know, that people were living in, you know. And the madness of pre-code. In the madness of pre-code. This does bite our podcast a little bit in the ankles because it's like, well, this movie's really great, but unfortunately, we can't do it because it's it's just got everything in the whole nine yards. If you're Southern. Yeah, and the, th the thing is, um, some of these movies you know, that, that were before the Hayes Code, they had stuff, you never knew what you were going to, you know, there's no rating system. So you, I actually did have to watch a lot of these to make sure there wasn't anything, you know, that kind of got through. Um, and so there, and there's a couple of those things. But what I thought about this movie, it was a, a pretty average movie. Uh, but due to budgetary and time constraints, the, the movie's writing and acting delivery is kind of messed up. Uh, this movie needed a little bit more time in the oven. <laughs> I would have liked to see this movie achieve greater than it could have been. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a little bit more time in the oven, good quality ingredients instead of, I don't know, oatmeal and ketchup. <laughs> 
Maybe, yeah. maybe maybe a little dash of olive oil that was Lugosi, maybe, but maybe <laughs> that's so. it. So my thought on this movie is, yes, it's average. And atmosphere, the fragrance. <laughs> it is, this okay, this movie is atmospheric, I will tell you. Um, and it's average, but it has enough things in it that are memorable that I, I would only say the more hardcore, you know, oldie, oldie horror fans, with, the only... Only if you're an old, oldie, hard, hardcore horror film uh, fanatic would you want to see this. You know, the average watcher of movies would be like, "This is dumb," and would probably just skip it. But this did spook me sometimes, even more than like none of these like horror movies that we really covered spooked me. And like White Zombie did touch a little bit of nerve inside my heart, and I went like, "Ooh," and stuff. And that's admirable. You get a little chill on a couple of those scenes, but as the Hayes Code kind of cracked down on a lot of what you could do, some of these movies are going to end up with a lot of stuff censored out. And that's going to be, it's going to be for good because you get a wider audience that can see these movies. It's also going to be for the bad because they won't take chances. They won't, you know, uh, do those risky things that, you know, might offend somebody, but, but are really chilling and, and memorable. So, so yeah. the next movie we are going to cover is uh, Tarzan, I'm pretty sure. It's Tarzan the Ape Man. Tarzan the Ape Man. It's based off of Tarzan of the Apes, which is uh, um, Edgar Rice Burroughs. So the, and this would basically be out of the frying pan and into the frying pan. Or a little, maybe a slightly bigger frying pan, I would maybe. say this movie, I don't is know. More, this movie is more fantasy adventure. So we've done a lot of movies that some that had sci-fi elements, some that had more spooky horror elements. This one is more straightforward adventure. But we're definitely going to hold a lot of our return to monkey until <laughs> King Kong. But oh this is goodness. that that was just the one taste I'm going to give you, return to monkey, but we're probably going to hold back our there's return to so monkey. There's so much. There's so well, I'll tell you this right now. I looked through the list of our movies coming up. And there's like there's so many apes and monkeys coming up. It's not even funny. I mean, not even counting King Kong. There's just tons of apes and gorillas and all kind of stuff. People had a fascination with apes and gorillas. Yeah, you know, we have Tarzan the Ape Man. We have uh, Murders in the Rue Morgue, and then we have King Kong. We have the Kong. Ape. We have the Ape Man, which is not the same as Tarzan. It's another. And we have Return of the Ape Man. We have Conga. We have Planet of the Apes, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, Battle for the Planet of the Apes, uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes. So many apes that you you know, we'll just return to monkey every time. Yeah, we'll just uh, we're you know don't make a monkey out of us. But look, okay, when you come back, just swing on in on a vine into our podcast and uh, take a listen. To be like Curious George. Yeah, or George of the Jungle. Swanging, swanging every day, so glorious. Every day, <laughs> so wondrous, wondrous. Are you actually singing the song from Curious George? Yes, that that it's a great, it's a bop. It's now, a bop. my my other son is a huge Curious George fan, and you know he just plays he he plays the kitchen sink. Yeah, like every day. So I mean, <laughs> so whenever he listens to Curious George, I do an imitation for him. If you would wouldn't be so kind, I will do it now. That is as good as it's going to get, folks. 
That is the creme de la creme of my Curious George imitation, and I leave you with that. Yeah, but this movie overall did leave a kind of legacy. Uh, not so much onto the zombie movies of today, but more of like, you know, Princess and the Frog, like voodoo kind of movies kind of cropped up later as well, such as Princess and the Frog. So, I mean, in like the 2000s. So, I mean, pretty cool. Yeah. 2010. 2010. So, uh... It is time to perhaps uh, let these listeners go about their daily life, <sighs> go back to work if they work. You know, stretch their sore muscles and kind of crack them, kind of like, you shall now end the podcast for real. I'm doing the chant. Bye, guys. Don't forget to open your third eye and telepathically message us at cinefanpod at gmail.com. Set your chronoscope dial to the future setting and peruse cinematicfanpodcast.wordpress.com. Hunker over your ham radio as your keen ears listen for the ghostly voices tweeting on our Twitter at cinematicfanta1. Exchange all of your money into Republic credits and donate at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash cinefanpodcast ending transmission now